Welcome to the first edition of The Pin Factory, the new podcast from the Adam Smith Institute. My name is Nathie Lash, and I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. Today I'll be joined by Matt Cochon, our Deputy Director, and Kate Andrews, the Spectator's Economics Correspondent. We'll be chatting about the latest COVID response, trade deals, and the US election. But first, let me introduce you to The Pin Factory. In the wealth of nations, Adam Smith uses the pin factory as an example of the importance of specialization and trade. He explains how one person working alone could barely produce a single pin, but working together, the same individuals could produce tens of thousands of pins. We at the ASI believe that much of our modern prosperity over the last few hundred years is divided by freedom to trade, to specialize, and to innovate. Each week on the pin factory, ASI staff, fellows, and special guests will take a look behind the headlines to provide a deeper understanding of the stories that are shaping our world. Let's start today with the government's plans to lift the lockdown, the biggest leap towards freedom since the start of the COVID-19 crisis. Boris Johnson has announced that the 4th of July will be Britain's lockdown independence day with pubs, restaurants, hairdressers, museums, outdoor gyms, and a more set to reopen. Um, this is, of course, excellent news that we're uh, cautiously reopen the economy. Um, Matt, are we excited for this news? How are you going to celebrate lockdown Independence Day? I am really excited, Matt. We finally get let out of the house. We're going to see the alfresco dining revolution that has been rolling out across Europe, outdoor cafes, outdoor restaurants, pubs are doing takeaway pints. I mean, I'm a little bit sad that swimming pools aren't going to reopen. We know that chlorinated water is actually much, much stronger than uh, the outer shell, protein shell of this virus. Um, and I was kind of hoping that my that my personal uh, swimming pool would be opened again uh, because I have missed doing any form of exercise and becoming quite the blob on the sofa. So I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to some independence, a bit more freedom, but it's still a long way to go before it's back to normality. Yeah, Kate, is the government moving too slowly with lifting the lockdown or are they taking the right cautious approach? I think they probably could have moved faster, but we have to appreciate the perspective that they're coming from. The UK may well end up with one of the highest death tolls in Europe or certainly something close to it. Uh, so it's makes it makes complete sense that the government would choose to be cautious on this front. One of the benefits, in theory anyway, about coming out of lockdown a bit more slowly than the rest of Europe is that you can look at what's happening in Europe and you can see problem areas or successes and you can act accordingly. You can choose to not open something or you can speed up with something else because of how it's gone in a different country. Unfortunately, even then, the UK still hasn't really been taking out of the playbook, especially on schools. The evidence so far is that sending kids back to school does not seem to have an impact on the rate of infection. And yet the UK, I think, has just been woeful in this area. Uh, But the fourth is really significant, right? We are having a significant reopening of pubs, of restaurants, of of things that make people feel very human and part of what it means to be alive. And I think that there's, you know, it's going to be a joyous day. Um, It's going to be really wonderful to, to have those senses of freedom again. I think it's kind of interesting at the moment to look at the government's rhetoric around this, though. So we've seen that the beaches uh, had a lot of visitors over the past few days, Bournemouth in particular. They're possibly misleading, but possibly legitimate photographs showing people all crowded together. And the government's now saying, look, we'd be hesitant, but don't forget, we can close this down. 
And it just reminds us what a crazy time we're living in, that the government has to grant us these freedoms. These aren't things that, um, you know, are, are just innate that, that we can do every day. Uh, and it is my hope that we get out of this phase as quickly as possible. The government really shouldn't be in this position to be able to open and close the beaches one day more than is necessary. I think we've seen the data from Google Maps, from Apple Maps, from live spends on fintech cards, uh, that the UK has been pretty adherent actually to a lockdown, to even to a much greater degree than countries like Spain, Italy and France, uh, which saw much harsher restrictions based on people being able to go in and out. So a lot of the sensationalization that we've seen in media about too many people being out, um, uh, it doesn't actually bear will reflect reality for most people. Now, there's lots of people, you know, isolated incidents of, of raves on a beach in South Wales yesterday, of uh, raves in um, in South London and also in Notting Hill. But for the vast majority, uh, they have been adhering to not going out, not having fun um, in order to slow the spread of this virus. And actually, a lot of the time when you're reopening various things, you're trusting people with their common sense. There was a there was a good article when Boris Johnson was vying to be mayor and he was asked by city leaders what kind of mayor he wanted to be. And he said he wanted to be the mayor from Jaws, uh, who, even in the face of a, of, a, of a killer shark in the water, kept the beaches open uh, in order that the town survived. Uh, and he said, OK, fine, he got that call wrong. But um, it was actually it's important that you trust people, you give them common sense. Um, and I think that that's roughly where we are. And, uh, but we're, we're heading back to a point where we're starting to trust uh, the British public to do the right thing. And Kate, I was wondering, have you, have you got any big American Independence Day plans? Have you got a, are, you, are you having a picnic? Are you, are you going to a restaurant? Are you having a big brunch? <laughs> uh, well, every year I tend to put on my outrageous USA flag T-shirt usually some kind of gear that I got from the Mitt Romney 2012 campaign and march around London. But that doesn't seem totally appropriate this year because we're celebrating something else very important as well. Um, You know, Matt, I may not be in the country. A friend of mine and I have booked Eurostar tickets for the fourth in an (laughs) overwhelmingly optimistic gesture to freedom. Um, We want to be as freedom maximizing as possible on the first day we're allowed to do it. Now, I didn't realize freedom meant going to France, but clearly something's (laughs) on. <laughs> Heading back to the EU, Matt. No, um, uh, we 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 just really want to to embrace the freedoms that we may get. But actually, that one has not been confirmed, at least at the recording of this podcast. You may have to come back to me on that. We, we may not be going to France, depending on what happens with air bridges. In which case, I will be at the pub. Yeah, I, I think the, the government is facing a real challenge here because we, we still have these something like 50,000 new cases a week, according to the ONS, um, many of which aren't actually being picked up by test and trace, hundreds of new hospital admissions still. I mean, I look at, by comparison to my, my, my home uh, state in Victoria and Australia, they've had about uh, 100 cases total in the last week and they're completely freaking out and they're talking about re-shutting down. Um, and at the same time, the UK has quite frankly got a lot more than that is opening up. We don't seem to have a good idea, though, um, which steps we're taking actually have what impact on the virus. And it's partly because this is so new. Um, it, it seems like we could actually open up a lot of outdoor interaction without there being much risk, particularly because I think it's quite warm. So that the warmth and the sun and the UV ray probably destroys the virus to some extent. So uh, the health secretary is probably really not speaking the truth when he says that this, um, the virus doesn't respect it being sunny. And in fact, does respect it. It gets destroyed by the sunlight, best we can tell. It doesn't seem to spread outside. But at the same time, now they're taking uh, additional risk by 
potentially opening up these restaurants and bars and cafes and, and, and I think putting a lot of faith in people that they'll continue to social distance, that they'll, if they do come down with symptoms, most importantly. Um, I'm more worried in the longer run, though, as I'm not so much worried about what's happening during the summer, but whether or not the system's in place to, to test and tra- track the virus are there to mean that we don't need to lock down when it comes to the winter and when it seems to like be more far more likely to spread. And since we haven't really successfully suppressed the virus, um, because we, we allowed it to get out of hand in the first place, unlike somewhere like Australia or South Korea or Taiwan, that uh, at least South Korea and Taiwan never really had the full lockdowns. And they, they're in a kind of difficult position, but it seems like during the summer is, is the right time uh, to open up. I'm slightly worried by the fact that the continental Europe have said that they want to have air corridors with the UK for business travellers. And the UK has said that that's something that they're willing to look into before they look into tourist um, channels when actually what they're saying is, well, we'll be able to go into an office where there's air circulation and, and, and confined space, all those places where it's actually much easier for this virus to thrive um, than people who are like Kate, maybe going to Paris and having some alder, alder, um, alfresco dining outside or even you know, going to Nice and lying on a beach. Um, and I'm slightly worried by... Uh, maybe some of the sort of political pressures that are being applied behind the scenes that don't necessarily relate to sort of the scientific evidence that we're seeing from the rest of Europe. Actually, Kate, when you were talking about, um, are they following the playbook? I'm slightly worried that we've, throughout this crisis, one of the biggest issues for the UK has been that we, we've been trying to do a invented here approach to basically everything. Um, and therefore we've always been, even though we've had two or three weeks ahead to, to, to plan everything, uh, we've ended up actually going from, from crisis to crisis during this pandemic. Um, I, do, I just can't see how that's changing or stopping yet. Yes, it's an important point, Matt, because we know that the quarantine measures that exist now, if you come to the UK as a citizen or as a tourist or a business traveler, you have to quarantine for 14 days, isn't based on any scientific or expert advice. It's led by the opinion polls. Now, I guess if you're going to be generous, the UK government is trying to get people to head back to their offices slowly, but surely, as long as they're COVID secure, they're trying to get people back out to the shops. And if they see that something or some policy makes people more feel more secure to do that, then maybe that's a, a, a box to tick and an important one. However, it's hugely economically damaging you know, to, to shut down flights, to shut down business and tourism. Um, it's going to have a massive impact on UK sectors and, of course, the UK's economy and the global economy overall. Um, and the fact that it's not based on, on scientific advice, but it's very much a political decision, I think makes it slightly harder to swallow. Look, I'm actually a little bit more sympathetic to the idea of border closures, but it seems like it, it was very much too late because um, if we had put in place proper border closures uh, initially with China and then with uh, where the EU countries that were having flare-ups, um, you could have had a lot less of an outbreak in the UK. So it just seems quite bizarre that after we've already had the outbreak, after we've already had one of the biggest um, virus spreads in, in Europe, that would then suddenly start controlling the border. Um, and, and then withdraw those restrictions relatively quickly. It seems quite pointless. I think we might just move on to the economic response. Um, so we're expecting in the coming days, potentially on Tuesday, the Prime Minister is going to uh, make a speech um, announcing the, the next stage of the government's economic ca- package, um, potentially around the theme of build, 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 and talking a lot about public infrastructure. We've also seen some reporting that the Chancellor is looking towards the VAT cuts and national insurance holiday for new hires. Kate, do you think it's the, the right approach the government's taking um, in terms of trying to probably kind of almost a Keynesian-style stimulus package? 
Well, I'm on board with tax cuts. Um, I, I was pre-COVID. We were at a near 50-year high in terms of the tax burden in the UK before the crisis came along. Um, but certainly now as well, um, in terms of that kind of uh, stimulus, I'm not convinced that VAT is necessarily the right cut. I, I get the argument they're trying to push spending forward. They're going for that V-shape recovery, which means that they need the economy to grow very, very quickly. So they want to push people's spending forward. They want to push people's economic activity to now. Uh, but I'm not sure if you are going to cut taxes, that's where you should use the political capital to do so. VAT is quite an efficient tax. And also, it's not obvious that the reason people aren't heading out to the shops is because of a few percentage points on VAT. It's the fear of a virus that's keeping people mm. inside. Uh, and a VAT cut, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Amazon and, and, and the products that it delivers to your door. But um, if they're actually trying to get people out of their homes, it doesn't, it's it, the VAT tax cut could, could help Amazon just as much as any high street shop. I'm under the impression, rumor has it anyway, that Boris Johnson is going to come out with quite a grand speech at the beginning of July. And um, it may it may offer a lot in terms of spending. It may offer at least uh, give the impression anyway that all the good stuff is coming. The money's coming. The tax cuts are coming. Everything that people like is coming. Uh, but perhaps things we can't totally afford. And then the chancellor may have to wander in a few weeks later to uh, clean that up and to actually lay out, at least in the short term, uh, what the economic thinking is. For me, you need to be making cuts and you need to be making changes in, in, in the area of the job sector. You need to make it easier for employers to hire. I think tackling national insurance is long overdue and really quite right to do um, now that we've had this crisis. Because for every scenario or forecast you see right now, whether it's from the IMF, the Bank of England, the OBR, um, all of them are suggesting pretty quick economic pickup. I think the V-shape recovery is in question, whether or not it's really going to be that fast. But all of them suggest that the economy is certainly going to bounce back. What I'm looking at when I look at these scenarios is what they think is going to happen to jobs. And that's the really worrying thing. Um, this furlough scheme technically ends in October, but come August, employers have to start paying back, pay, start have to start paying in small contributions, 5%, 10%, and upwards from there. Uh, and a lot of businesses, I think the IOD estimates a quarter of businesses have said they can't even afford the 5% right now. Uh, that's when you're going to start to see serious job losses again in October with that cliff edge when we fall off the furlough scheme when it comes to a fairly abrupt end. Uh, and all of these scenarios suggest that the jobs that the job vacancies aren't bouncing back, that employment isn't bouncing back nearly as quickly as I think the economy will. So I think the government needs to be really focused on what it can change in the tax code, but also what rule, but also what red tape it can roll back, uh, in order to make sure that people can get back onto the jobs ladder. Yeah, Kat, I think that's absolutely right. And it's important to have a model here in our minds of what's actually going on with the economy. So in a sense, actually, I think you can, can say that we're frozen it, but that's the easy part. We've got the furlough scheme. You can give people a lot of cash. You can give the impression that there's, there's economic activity when, in fact, the economy's um, been reduced by a third, at least temporarily. The real challenge, though, is unfreezing. Um, and the economy is not a machine you can turn it off on and off. It's quite a complex system. And the time in which it's frozen is a bit like cryogenics, when you freeze a human brain. We don't really know how to unfreeze that either. Um, but what I think we can start to understand is that when we do the unfreezing, when we try to restart the economy, not necessarily all those jobs that are furloughed are still going to be there for a whole number of reasons. Um, consumers 
aren't necessarily going to want the same things in future that they wanted yesterday. There's going to be, let's say, more online shopping or people living in wanting to live in different places or commuting less or using video chat more. You know, there's going to be you know millions and millions of, of change behaviors amongst the population. And while the economy is in flux, what really the government needs to do is actually let it transition to its new state. And I think that's going to be quite painful in the short run. And I think we're going to see um, quite a lot of employment loss. And, and to some extent, we, I think we actually have to allow that because if we don't have some loss and, and some what you might consider to be creative destruction, then we, we can't have um, the second part of that, that phrase or the first part, but it's really the second part, which is the creativity part of it. We need to free up economic resources and let people find their new normal as quickly as possible. And in order to do that, I think we need to get rid of taxes on investment, like that restrict people from um, investing in, in capital resources, or we need to get rid of employment red tape, makes it harder to hire people. All that kind of government regulation intervention is going to be quite damaging if we want the economy to transition to its new state. The other part that really worries me about the government's narrative is that they're, they're, they're confusing something quite important here, which is they're trying to use the, the rebuilding of the economy for particular purposes, either levelling up, you know, this kind of um, geographical quality question or for green policies. But I actually don't think that should be the priority right now, even if those are good policies, because the danger is that if you try to intervene in the economy whilst it's regrowing, you, you actually hurt the regrowth. Um, the economy needs to find its own natural balance. The entrepreneurs need to find out what is the most productive things to, for them to be doing. And the more the government intervenes or bails out failing companies, it stops that really challenging but important process. Um, Matt, we've been doing a bit of work at the SI thinking about what kind of policies we'd like to see. Where were you at in terms of what you think would be most important for the government to do at this stage? I actually quite like the, what you were just describing when you were talking about the government directing. Um, when We just had the anniversary of the Brexit vote four years ago and the narrative of taking back control. And one of the things I was really hoping the government might do is allow consumers and businesses to take back control of what their priorities are. Uh, we instead, as you just mentioned, briefly alluded to, we get a, a green agenda, we get the leveling up agenda, grand plans from the centre as to what the economy is going to be, which who's going to be the winners and losers. And I sort of think of it as like those little um, Japanese shoes that um, that people were bound into for years and years under in the in the old period, um, and. What they end up doing is they restrict growth in a certain way, and unfortunately, they end up distorting um, you as you grow. So that that might be what happens. That if you put a break on one area of the economy that is politically unpalatable, um, you end up with that bit being stunted, but you don't necessarily end up with the bit that you wanted to grow growing, um, and that will be a disaster for the long run prosperity for the UK. Now, the one thing I wouldn't do is what the shadow chancellor, Annalise Dodds, came out today and said to the Mirror that she wanted to increase taxes in order to stimulate the economy. Um, typically, when you add a tax on something, you actually end up... She's <laughs> not even a good Keynesian. It. Not even a good Keynesian. Yeah, if you're a good Keynesian, then you want to, you know, you want to spend in the bad times um, and then cut back in the good times. The other thing about Keynesian is there is no real Keynesian. They, they never... Um, identify a good time in which to actually just cut back growth. Um, but the, the Annalise Dodd saying, you know, she wants to she wants to tax the rich more as we end uh, lockdown, and that's and it's it's a, it's a sentiment that's shared across the left. I, it's kind of sad because one of the things I was kind of hoping for from maybe Keir Starmer's more sort of social democrat 
Labour Party was that maybe they would have an honest conversation about the Nordic economy that they actually want to have, a Nordic social system that they actually want to have, which is a large amount of redistributive taxes, not pre-distributive taxes, that allow them to fund the social model that they want. It's not reliant on just taxing people at the top end of society. They have to tax everybody a lot more. Um, And until we have that kind of honesty from the Labour Party, it's still a non-serious proposition. Hey, Matt, I totally totally agree with you. I do think we have to be slightly critical of the Conservatives as well, because it strikes me... We'll see what happens in Boris Johnson's speech, but it strikes me that all of the ideas that this Conservative Party and Kiyosama's Labour Party had before the COVID crisis are now magically the answers to save us from the COVID crisis. Uh, and I don't see a lot of new thinking. I mean, as, as you put so well, Matt, you know, the Labour Party isn't being honest about what it would actually take to fund a lot of the plans that they have um, and what it would really mean, especially for economic growth and the way that the state would suck up the resources and, and not allow usually much more efficient private sector to use them. Uh, but I'm worried because, you know, Boris Johnson's speech next week is toted to be an announcement to, quote, build, build, build about his public infrastructure spending. And we know from the election, we know from before the election that, you know, this is what he's always wanted to do. He was never going to let go of the level of the leveling up agenda, regardless of the state of the UK's finances, regardless of how inefficient and bureaucratic and very expensive and totally out of date HS2 is, you know, he's going to push on with what he wants to do. Um, And the Conservative Party has been quite good about talking about how they're free market. But I'm going to be watching closely to see that in their actions, because, I mean, this is a time for genuine innovation, for real transformation. This is the time to overhaul the tax code and say, how can we really boost growth in a way that we have not done in the UK now for well over a decade? One way this government does appear to be heading in the right direction is this vicious effort to sign new trade agreements. Uh, we saw last week the announcement of trade deals with Australia and New Zealand, at least the negotiations for those trade deals beginning. Um, this comes on top of ongoing talks with Japan and the US, uh, whilst these negotiations with leaving the EU continue, or a new trade deal with the EU at least. Um, Matt, is the government though potentially biting off more than it can chew? Is it actually going to be able to complete all these trade deals simultaneously uh, for the Britain's bright new global future? So the reason that you do trade deals concurrently when you are a smaller country is so that you don't get boxed into a corner by a larger entity demanding more than you should give. So we saw for the, the, the outcome of doing a single trade deal with a single partner that is a larger and a bit more of a regulatory powerhouse than the UK, namely the European Union. And we did it in the toughest trade negotiation in the world because you're not trying to get things to come together. You're not trying to get equivalent. You're trying to decouple, uh, which is the exact opposite of what a normal trade deal does. So in my head, it makes sense to try and do deals with the European Union and the USA and Australia and New Zealand at the same time. There's only one time limit. Uh, on any of these deals, and that's with the European Union deal, for apart from the the sort of withdrawal agreement that sits underneath it. Uh, but the there is a there is a very hard deadline for the European Union deal. The government has been quite clear that it will walk away from a negotiation with the US or Australia or New Zealand or Japan if it looks like they're trying to be pushed on things that they're not willing uh, to give. If there's no give and take. 
um, with the trade deal. Now, the problem with trade deals is that they are inherently mercantilist. Um, the best trade in the world is the one where it says, okay, fine, you can sell whatever it is you want in my country. Um, I don't mind. It's totally unilateral because it's all about consumers and consumers having extra choice and imports aren't a bad thing. They're a good thing. Um, but politicians get involved and therefore you're wanting to open their access, their markets to access for your producers as well as allowing your consumers to access products from those other countries. Um, the countries that we're doing deals with are actually friendly countries. We have a lot more in common in terms of sort of culturally with Australia and New Zealand and um, and even the United States than necessarily we had with some of our continental neighbors. Um, and in terms of sort of even regulatory harmony, we actually do like the Australians um, know how to be a small mid power regulatory wise and New Zealand do too. Um, and therefore, maybe it's going to be a bit more flexible when it comes to sort of give and take. Um, but that also allows us a bit more leeway when we turn around to Europe and the United States and we're saying, actually, we're changing the rules of trade. We're not about harmonization. We're not about forcing ourselves into a single model. We're about trusting um, the consumers to understand the differences between products when they're buying them. Um, and to, to understand that actually regulators in each of our developed countries are realistically trying to get the same thing, the same outcome which is the good for their own citizens. Um, and, you know, whether that's environmental, whether that's safety, regulators, we trust that regulators in Canada are not trying to produce products that are going to spontaneously combust. We trust that uh, consumers, the regulators in Australia are not trying to ensure that there's food in the, in the supply chain that ends up poisoning um, Aussies in Canberra or people in Lincolnshire. And that's a very different way to the way that we did trade with the European Union within the European Union, because the European Union was set up from very disparate countries with different legal systems, very, very different political histories, ranging from fascistic police states to communist, ex-communist countries, Western federal, like Western Germany federalization, uh, the French Republic, the, the United Kingdom, very different languages, trying to make sure that they were all playing by the same rule. It was actually very genuinely quite a sensible move at the time. Uh, but we're talking about countries where we actually have a lot of trust, a lot of mutual understanding and intelligibility between what is the outcome that we want. Um, and so we should be moving at the same time altogether for, for deals that um, fundamentally change the way that we've been doing trade for quite a while. And so the DIT looks like it's got its head screwed on there. Whether that's the same for how the cabinet office sees trade, um, whether the re whether the sort of the rest of um, the Westminster bubble understands uh, that that's the sort of direction of travel is a different question. We still see very determined lobby groups from everyone from you know failed businessman Jamie Oliver through to uh, the National Farmers Union um, and War on Want and WWF all vying to try and scupper trade deals on their terms because um well because it doesn't look like the eu and they want it to be as close to the eu as possible and that's absolutely fine um but that debate was lost four years ago and it's been repeatedly rejected by the british people in election after election um, and it's time for them to let go so kate um what would you like to see out of these deals and realistically what, what do you think we're going to get oh two very different things um you know getting down to zero tariffs 
uh, I don't want regulatory alignment, but I do want mutual recognition um, with countries that deserve it, of course. I mean, you can't go around recognizing other people's standards if they're below yours, but I think there's a lot of dishonesty on this front, or at least political manipulation when we talk about trade. Lots of places do things differently. I mean, that's that's one of the best things about globalization is that it creates choice, it creates differences, it allows the consumer to be empowered. And if the UK can recognize another country's standards, another country uh, that upholds our principles, not just in terms of trade, but also in terms of ethics and production and the rest of it, um, then we should recognize it. Uh, and I agree with Matt that we should be pursuing any trade deal that we can get right now. Um, I think what the UK is in desperate need of actually is sort of a skeleton trade framework with a really prominent country, say Australia or New Zealand. Now, I think you could take a trade deal like that and not copy it like for like with tons of other countries, but you could definitely use that skeleton to say, this is what we know we're willing to agree to. This is what we know our red lines are uh, and, and you know, negotiate from there, but that could really speed up the process. So pursue with every country and then see where you can get that first really meaningful trade deal, take the skeleton and try to replicate it somewhat like for like. And I would say there are two exceptions there. One is a trade deal Matt has already flagged up and that is the European Union. This is going to be bespoke, but of course it's very unique because because uh, when the UK finally moves out of the transition period, it will be in regulatory alignment with the EU. Uh, we don't have to change our behavior. The whole point is that we will be uh, moving away from, from regulatory alignment. And so it just means that the whole negotiation process is different. It's a question of what we want to keep instead of what we want to start building and structuring in to a trade deal. And the other is, of course, the United States of America. I don't think you're going to be able to take the same trade deal that you have with New Zealand and apply it to the USA. That is sort of the, the big prize at the end of all of this. And that is going to take a lot more negotiation. I think it was always very ambitious to suggest that it was going to happen right after the UK brexited or in Donald Trump's first term. Um, that's I do think it's going to take a while, but it's worth it. It's definitely worth it. Um, and one other thing I would say, um, and of course, I would say this on an ASI podcast, is that we shouldn't just be thinking about the trade and goods and services when we talk about these trade deals. We should be talking about movement as well. Uh, there's a lot of public appetite for more migration with certain parts of the world. And Brits are very keen to travel to other parts of the world and indeed work and live in other parts of the world. And we should take the most liberal attitudes that we hold towards migration. And we should try um, to create more freedoms and flexibility for people to go where they want to go, to work where they want to work, and to contribute here in the UK and to other countries. I'd really like to see um, the UK leading a kind of new movement when it comes to trade. And it seems like a lot of trade policies become increasingly imperialist in a lot of ways, that effectively countries are trying to export their standards. And the EU is, is this is basically what the whole model is when they try to trade, is that when other countries to necessarily do things exactly the way they would like to do it. I think I would definitely like to see a lot more equivalence focus, that if standards are good enough and high enough that we can trade together. Um, a particularly good model for this, of course, is the Australia-New Zealand um, Trans-Tasman agreements. These are various agreements that basically keep trade very free-flowing between Australia and New Zealand because of an acceptance of kind of similar standards. There's been some um, harmonisation of certain standards over time, but at a relatively minor level compared to, let's say, the EU and with agreements of, of both national governments. So I, I think in particular, well, there's a lot of challenges with the US deal as a, as a bigger power in America in some ways when it comes to, to trade is, is quite protectionist, particularly if it's farmers. Um, there's a lot of potential for uh, the UK's trade deals with, with Australia and New Zealand. 
we are already, though, seeing a lot of fight back against trade, um, very much focused on the food standards front. Matt, you've been doing a lot of work on this. Um, the National Farmers uh, Union, who are working in courts with the Mail on Sunday on a major campaign about protecting farmers and protecting food standards. Um, what is going on here? Why is this, where's this opposition to farming and, and trade when it comes to agricultural goods coming from? So it's coming from a number of different places. The first is, I'm going to be blunt, an angry rump of Remainers that still haven't quite forgiven the British people for voting to leave four years ago. The second, and they and they therefore want to scupper any form of meaningful agreement with the EU and also to curtail the ability for in Britain to have an independent trade policy, uh, which means that the EU becomes more attractive. Therefore, they get their desired foreign policy outcome, which is that the UK basically humiliatingly has to reapply to join the EU. They genuinely think that that's still an option. And they're disingenuous about it. I mean, they've been disingenuous throughout the entire process. You know, they they the oh we just want you to think again maybe we can have a second vote you know like despite repeated times that the british public has said no they continue down this path of obstructionism and and for some legitimate reasons they genuinely think that you know it will be disastrous uh, i think that they're mis- they're wrong-headed and actually genuinely quite destructive but they're one group of people um that, that they were sort of you see them and sort of the the maybe a bit more centrist parts of the Labour Party, but also the left wing of the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats as well, of course. Um, What we then see is a a group of protectionists uh, like the National Farmers Union that are pretty happy to see uh, new export markets, but don't want to see any any new competition. Um, And this is the sort of, you know, the Adam Smith Institute. So the Adam Smith quote of people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but in uh, it it always ends in some contrivance to raise prices. Um, and the, but actually, the, the the second part of that is that the government shouldn't stop groups meeting together. Um, but what they should do is not give them any legal benefit, not give them any power. Um, what the actual National Farmers Union wants, and the effectively they're using the mail on Sunday to run this campaign, um, is to end up with a commission that they stack, that then advises on trade deals and what standards, regulatory alignment and divergence we're willing to accept. And when they say what we're willing to accept, what they mean is that they are willing to accept. Unions work to the benefit of their members. It's absolutely fine. But government should work to the benefit of consumers. Um, And unfortunately, they're not doing that at the moment. Um, now there's other, you know, Jamie Oliver, I don't know what Jamie Oliver has got to do with it. I think somebody approached him. He's never really been a big fan of free choice. After all, when people were free to choose, they didn't choose his restaurants, <laughs> did they? Uh, so there's, a, there's other groups involved. I mean, War on Want has, has, has opposed every trade deal going. Uh, the WWF has opposed every trade deal, including ones that the EU signed. Um, that we, this is a random tag, ragtag of serial campaigners um, and also people who just, you know, genuinely... Um, want to force policy to be in their own interest as opposed to the general public good. Um, And so do I think we we can overcome them? I think they will grow louder and more vociferous. They've clearly got an in. They're clearly well-coordinated and they're running relatively good campaigns. Um, That's, however, is just a challenge. It's a challenge for for the likes of us to step up, make the case for free trade, 
Um, and also, it's a challenge to Boris Johnson to stick by his principles. We know that he's a free trader. He's made very good cases before. And to stick by the principles of, of his idol, Winston Churchill, as well, who um, made some of the best peons for, for free trade uh, that any politician in the UK has ever made. And of course, uh, Winston Churchill left the Tory party because they weren't free trading enough um, early on in his career. Kate, are you relatively optimistic about being able to, to overcome the kind of new protectionist movement that's, that's forming around environmental um, standards, but also in particular animal rights standards? It seems like within the government, uh, there's this quite clear divide between you have Liz Truss on the more freedom-loving side, and then you have someone like Michael Gove, who's from his time in the, in the Environment Department, talked a lot more about animal standards and the interests of farmers and, and limiting competition. Um, who's who's going to win out in that battle in the end? Well, it's a good question, Matt. Obviously, I'm very hopeful that the free traders win out, but I don't know how optimistic I am. What I will say is I think the Prime Minister, whilst obviously distracted at the moment with a global pandemic, and understandably so, probably isn't paying too much attention to this um, in the grand scheme of things, is, I think, at heart more sympathetic to the free trade movement than to the protectionist movement. I think that speaks to his time as mayor of London, sort of an openness. I do think he really bought into this idea of a global Britain when he was campaigning to leave the European Union. So it's by no means a done deal that the UK is going to get genuine free trade agreements with these other countries. But I do think you have a relatively sympathetic prime minister and a very good case. I mean, Matt just laid out all the people who are opposed to it, but I think at the heart of many people promoting protectionism is a very left-wing ideology, which is sometimes even open about the fact that they're not too bothered about economic growth. Now, they talk about economic growth as something that right-wingers want. They don't care about people. They care about GDP. Well, you know, what is GDP? GDP is measuring our well-being, our, 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 our prosperity, whether or not our wages are going up and down. It's measuring our quality of living, what we have access to. You know, these are things that deeply affect human beings. And I think that the case for free trade is a very understandable human one for for the traders around the world who in developing countries who are coming up, who need access to our markets to make their way in the world. And for our consumers here in the UK to see their prices go down, to, to make their quality of life better, to mean that their purchasing power goes further. It, it's a compelling, compelling case. One thing I think we always do need to be slightly cautious of, though, when we're talking about protectionism, is we need to separate those who are just clearly coming at it from an ideological left-wing agenda from those who might be genuinely worried. I have absolutely no doubt that the Farmers Union um, has people within it that are really quite scared about what's going to happen to their farms and to their jobs that they will have put decades into. These might be people who don't think they can retrain, people who are really concerned about their quality of life. And I think as free marketeers, we should be open to transition periods. We should be open to saying, look, we still, as the UK, might want to invest in these areas. Let's not pretend we're doing it for food, for food security. Let's be honest about the fact that we like these rolling landscapes, that tourists like to come visit them. We need to have those conversations more so that people don't think that we're being harsh to those who are genuinely worried about it. But I think in terms of the political debate, it, it really is this protectionism versus free trade um, stance that Matt laid out well. Um, and I, I think the free marketeers have a good shot, but we have to make the human case um, and we have to sort of break down those economic terms and explain why cheaper meat from New Zealand benefits people here in the UK. Uh, and sorry, the last thing I would just say really quickly is I think also, which we saw during the 2019 general election, is that 
America really stands out here. Um, at the moment, it's very easy to attack America because Donald Trump is at the helm and people say, what, well, you're going to do a Trumpian trade deal. Uh, as James Forsyth at The Spectator, our political editor, notes in his column this week, that changes a lot if Joe Biden wins in November. I know we're about to come on to U.S. politics, so maybe this is a good transition, but it becomes much harder to say, what, you're going to do a free trade deal with Joe Biden? I mean, um, say what you want about Joe Biden, but it just doesn't really have the same sting in it. Uh, so I also think that um, depending on what happens in November, the wing could be taken out of the sails a bit for the protectionists, who are going to find it a bit harder to convince the British public that Joe Biden is this boogie figure to do a trade deal with. I think that's almost certainly true. I think one thing I would just quickly say, Kate, is you're absolutely right to talk about that. You know, the people links. One of the things that people always find very hard on trade is that it's super di- like the benefits are super diffuse, but actually the the, uh, the the costs can be very 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 concentrated. Um, I think one of the, the key benefits when you're talking about people, we also have to talk about qualifications. We have to make sure that people are able to move so that they can see that when they're going to America, that they'll still be able to be a hairdresser. They'll be able to be a teacher. They'll be able to be a policeman. They'll be able to be a lawyer um, and a banker and an insurer. And suddenly that trade deal becomes very, very, very real, no matter whether it's Trump or Biden or whoever's in the White House. That benefit is then very concentrated. And suddenly those trade deals look a lot more appealing to the general public. Well, I think that's the right moment to move on to our next topic, which is the U.S. elections. Uh, Donald Trump held a rally last week in Oklahoma, which was notable for the high number of empty seats. And this is as polls are consistently pointing to a Democrat victory in November. And New York Times poll this week gave Joe Biden a healthy 14-point lead overall, um, as well as a lead in almost every demographic um, and some major leads in key states. Uh, But of course, we've been here before. We saw Hillary Clinton was up quite consistently in polls across the country at the last election. Um, Kate, should we read that much into this rally attendance? Is this just a symptom of COVID or do you really think Donald Trump's on the nose? I think the president's in trouble, Matt. I think he's been in trouble for some time. And I'll just do cards on the table now. I I put bets on, on Joe Biden to win Uh, before the COVID outbreak. Um, And I think he's been in trouble since then, and certainly now. However, there's a lot to read into those rallies. First is the way that the president briefed them, right? Saying, oh, it's going to be mass overflow. We're going to have, you know, millions of people wanting to come. I think he's in a million. Um, And then obviously you had thousands and thousands of empty seats. Um, I think the Trump campaign needs to prepare for the fact that this is true for every incumbent president, but also specifically for Donald Trump, the the shine wears off a bit. And I do think you're going to see less enthusiasm for Donald Trump in this race than you saw before. Um, I also think you have to factor in COVID. I mean, there'll be thousands and thousands of people voting for Donald Trump that wouldn't want to come out to a packed out rally. Uh, I also think that this new divide in American politics about whether or not you wanted to stay in lockdown or whether or not you really embrace America coming out of lockdown, despite the rate of infection still going up in some places in America, may actually break down into Republican and Democrat votes. Um, Maybe not on traditional party lines, but Trump is obviously the voice of reopening the economy, and Joe Biden was obviously the voice of being more cautious. Um, So you can be sure that for all those people at the rally, there will be many, many Americans across the country who will be even more enthusiastic like they were for Donald Trump. Um, But you're seeing more division lines. We saw this in 2016 as well. New kinds of voter bases were formed. We're seeing massive transitions in America at the moment. Um, Overall, I I do think Donald Trump is in trouble. Um, 
but I would never write him off. Not after 2016, certainly not now. Um, there is a shy Trump vote and it's huge. And I'm quite skeptical of a lot of the polling that I'm seeing. I could certainly believe that Joe Biden's ahead, but these polls saying that Texas and Georgia are turning blue um, are exactly the kind of rhetoric we had in 2016 when people said that Hillary Clinton was going to crush Donald Trump in the Electoral College. And we know the end of that story. It did not end up so well. I think it's just quite difficult here just to separate what's going on in the election uh, from the just the absolute omni-shambles when it comes to COVID. I mean, the US is uh, this week experienced days with the, the highest number of cases. Um, it seems like in Europe, COVID's very much on the down, whilst in the US, in many parts of the US at least, it, it seems to be on the up. It's obviously a huge country uh, compared to the UK, but still it doesn't seem like it's going that well for, for the country and therefore that reflects badly on Trump. Um, and you can see in the polls that Trump's um, both not going particularly well in terms of his approval of handling COVID or the approval of handling of all these Black Lives Matter protests. And while he may still be ahead on the economy, it's not like the economy is the number one issue on people's focus. What the, the danger for Democrats, I think, is that as we reach November, it's possible that COVID could have died down a bit and that with mass unemployment that they're now facing, Trump just becomes the default choice. Um, that said, though, I think the Democrats in choosing Biden have probably cho- chosen the, the least offensive possible candidate, um, somebody who's just not Trump, in order to just be able to attract as many potential marginal voters rather than going for someone who's um, more extreme. Um, Matt, wh- where is your thinking at at the moment on the US election? I'm going to lay my cards on the table and say I haven't a clue. We are five months or four and a half months from this election, we're in the middle of a pandemic. That's not a very American comment, commentator kind of thing to say. Uh, yeah, I know, but we, we have no idea what the economy is going to do. We have no idea what jobs are going to do. We have no idea what the health situation is going to be as we go into the winter. We have, we don't, we genuinely, none of these things we know, and all of them have massive impacts usually on elections. So, and it could all happen in a very, very, very short space of time. The thing I would say is that the, the United States at the moment, there is a monopoly of narrative that lots and lots of things in society are wrong and need to be fixed. I can't honestly say that Joe Biden strikes me as the person that fixes them. Therefore, a lot may depend on who his VP pick is. So does he choose a radical? Does he choose another moderate? Does he choose someone who Trump has had a personal fight with? But this is an old man. Anyone he picks will have to be seen in the American eyes as a potential president if something goes wrong. Yeah, Kate, how are you feeling about Biden? I mean, you put a bet on him. Are you going to be putting on the Joe Biden campaign T-shirts and doing what you can for his campaign? Or is it just for you just not... Trump is the the reason why you put the bet on him, or is it just purely a a political, um, sorry, a a financial choice to to put money onto Biden? (laughs) Um, Hedging one way or the other. No, the bet bet really wasn't about personal feelings. It was more that I just always thought that Joe Biden had the best chance at beating Donald Trump. Let's go back to 2018 and look at what happened in the midterm elections. Now, candidates like AOC did come through and have become very famous for her socialist ideas, but actually the the way that the Democrats took the House back very comfortably was through moderate candidates. At the end of the day, Americans are relatively moderate, but certainly more right-wing than what it means to be moderate in Europe. And Joe Biden fits the bill. And as we've seen throughout the primary elections before COVID hit, as we've seen in his response to the Black Lives Matter movement, he actually takes quite 
measured, albeit left wing, responses to a lot of these things. He doesn't go for the the Bernie Sanders cookie cutter socialist response. He says things like, we can't pay for Medicare for all. He says things like, we need to have some protection around statues, even if we don't like everything that these people stood for back in the day. Um, he, he, he doesn't go the full way to sort of the left-wing agenda. Um, and I think a lot of Americans will appreciate that. I also think a lot of those independent voters who gave Trump a chance in 2016 won't be thrilled uh, with the way things panned out. Of course, the major caveat here, and I do say absolutely major, is the economy. Donald Trump created spectacular growth in the States, at least comparably to what we had in the Obama years and certainly what many other developed countries have experienced in the past four years. And in that sense, I'm not sure that the narrative around this election has changed all that much since before COVID. Do you want to elect the guy who says really unhinged things, who tries to pick fights with the dictator of North Korea, who you can never guess what he's going to say or do, who often says quite racist and sexist, horrible things, but who kickstarts the economy? Or do you want to select the guy who you know it probably is going to slap on some more red tape, hike taxes, the economy won't be as effective, but doesn't come with all of that really, really nasty baggage? Um, I, it's just a suspicion of mine, and it was before COVID, that Americans are going to lean towards the latter. But as said, I, I'm not writing off Donald Trump because um, a lot of Americans are out of work. A big question for them is going to be, um, who's going to put me back in work? Who's going to get the economy going? How am I going to get my wages back? And I could see Trump appealing to a lot of those people simply because he doesn't have a bad record from the past four years. Employment's been at record high. Unemployment's been at record low. I think a lot of the communities that he insults and degrades probably won't be able to choose the economy this time around because of how horrible it is. And, and, and many of us who aren't in those communities also won't be able to choose him for that very reason. But there will be many Americans who do. Um, so by no means am I saying that Donald Trump can't win. I just think before and after COVID, Biden's really got quite a good shot at coming in and saying, let's just take a break, everyone. Let's just have a breather. Let's reboot and come back in four years time, maybe for the bigger changes. Yeah, I was I was honestly pretty kind of disgusted when Trump got elected because I saw someone who was very anti-free trade, who said all these revolting things about migrants, um, who seemed to be quite genuinely quite racist and, and xenophobic. Um, and I think that's symbolically quite damaging for America. And I, I think um, by Trump's worst feature is the fact that he's withdrawn American from a lot of the international institutions. And, and that's where actually we do need America to lead. We need America to lead us to the World Health Organization and use their power to make sure that the right person is at the top there and that China doesn't have too much influence there. Uh, we need um, America's leadership in the Pacific. We need America's leadership in NATO to keep uh, Europe together and, and against the potential threat uh, from Russia. Um, at the same time, though, I suppose I became more comfortable with Trump over the last few years because I did see him do a lot of good things on the economy with red tape cutting and tax cutting, as well as even criminal justice reform that's, um, in terms of actual social justice reforms, is, is actually quite a good thing. The problem, though, I think what COVID has shown is just the danger of having someone who is fundamentally incompetent out of their depth in the White House because of how badly he has handled this. And I know it was just a joke at the rally, but him saying, I'm going to stop funding testing because we find too many people with the virus. It's like, well, yes, of course, you're going to find more people if you test more, but you definitely want to know that they're there and you definitely want to be able to do all you can to stop the virus from spreading. And the fact that he just throws out those kind of crazy things, he's more of a performer than a serious leader. Mm -hmm. And I think during something like a national crisis, you really do need that serious leadership. 
Um, just going back to Biden, though, for a second, I have a bit of a, a fun question for us in terms of uh, the, the VP nominee pick. Of course, Joe Biden is 78, which would make him older when he comes into power than Ronald Reagan was when he left office. And therefore, that makes the VP nominee extremely important. But who should be the v- VP nominee? Uh, but wrong answers only. Who would be the most terrible <laughs> possible uh, VP nominee uh, for Joe Biden uh, to make? Matt, Carol what do you Baskin. It's, it's Carol Baskin. Really. <laughs> I mean, she's she's not in jail. So that's, that's a good sign compared to the Tiger King, who's a bit more of a libertarian candidate for the position. <laughs> Um, I'll go slightly more political, Matt, but I'm going to go with Kamala Harris just because I think it would be absolutely horrendous if the person he picked as his VP, especially in these times when America is really coming to terms with its history of slavery and its current problems with with police brutality, for him to pick somebody who played such a large role in mass incarceration uh, during her time in California, um, that to me would just be absolutely heart-wrenching. Um, I think his best pick would probably be someone like Michelle Obama, sort of um, the closest we've ever had to Queen of America, and I mean that in a nice way. Um, and I, then I think more realistically, perhaps somebody like Gretchen Whitmer, uh, governor of Michigan, uh, she endorsed him in Michigan, and that was a really key state for Biden to win because that was sort of the make or break moment for Bernie Sanders, uh, and he won, Joe Biden won. Um, and someone like her, you know, it's a big, big swing state this election cycle, um, it's going to really help Biden to appeal to a lot of Trump's base, I think, that are white working class. Um, that could be that could be a positive choice for him. We'll know pretty soon. And as you say, Matt, there's a very good chance that this person could have a lot more power in, in a few years' time than what we're voting in now. I was really glad that you said that Kamala Harris would be a wrong pick there, Kate, um, because Dan, who's producing this and recording it, uh, would have said that she's a cop. Um, and that was a sort of that's a sort of a base level response that a lot of Americans <laughs> actually would have had to to Kamala Harris being the VP pick. Um, Gretchen would be great in terms of she's had a fight with uh, President Trump. She knows exactly how to take him on. Um, I think for me the one the, the surprise one that I would actually genuinely like is to see Susan Rice picked. Um, because I think the Rices have had a raw deal in American politics. Um, but I, and I think it's time to see one of them back on the main stage. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd love to see a, a Susan Rice kind of a, a pick as well. Um, I don't know if that's as realistic. Um, it seems like Amy Kulbuchar is currently uh, leading in the odds, a bit more of a kind of standard pick. Biden's, of course, and we haven't said, but um, is kind of coming up in a lot of our suggestions that it has to be a woman um, in order to, to balance out the ticket. Uh, and I, I think in the end, it's going to be something that um, will be quite defining uh, to his presidency. And it needs to be someone who kind of gets the tone right when it comes to the issues that America is currently facing. Uh, and it's just going to be a, a, a huge, interesting um, one, one ahead. Um, but unfortunately, we have run out of time. But thank you very much uh, for joining us today for The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's new podcast, Kate and Matt, um, as well as a special thank you to Daniel Pry, who is our producer.